for the song, please. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, back to 5 by 15 It's a very benign crowd. I, I spoke at the Kit Kat Club not so long ago, and a friend of mine asked, to do it, uh, asked me to do it. And I, I was f- feeling perfectly confident. And just as I was about to go on stage, she came up to me and said, we're so pleased you're doing this. We really are. We had Michael Palin last week. He was brilliant. Um, that is my favourite th- song. I think it's possibly the greatest song that was ever written. Um, I first, I can't remember where exactly I was when I first heard it, but 
I've probably heard it when it came out in about 1968. Um, I grew up in a household where the likes of Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and Sergio Mendes and The Seekers were rarely off the turntable. I grew up in a house where uh, what has become uh, pejoratively known as easy listening was the music I heard. It was the music of my parents. And um, it was music that I genuinely loved, and I still love it. They tried to bring it back in the 90s. Uh, in the 90s, I think everything else had been revived. You'd had the blues revival, the ska revival, jazz revival. Everything had been brought back, but easy listening. And they tried to rebrand it. They called it lounge core to try and give it a trendy title. Um, I don't believe anyone actually like those weird Japanese imports and all, all this stuff that is like a tsunami of, of um, uh, esoteric, idiosyncratic, easy listening records. But I really did, and I really do, and I don't think it's arch, I don't think it's cute, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. This is music that I genuinely loved, and that particular song um, is, I think, the greatest example of that kind of music. Um, and for me... It, it always, it's always kind of been there on the periphery of my life, I suppose. Um, and it even reminds me of, of the punk period. In 1977, when I was uh, 17, in the summer, I moved to London. Um, we'd been brought up on various uh, American Air Force bases um, around the country uh, and, and in Europe. And um, coming to London was such a sense of lib liberation. It was in Incredible, particularly that summer, because it was the summer of punk. So I spent my time uh, going to punk gigs by myself, and I'd go and see the, the Clash and the Jam and the Stranglers and the Slits and all of these people, fantastic. And then I would go back to uh, this place called the Ralph West Halls of Residence, which was in Battersea Bridge Road, Albert Bridge Road, which housed all the arts all these students that were going to the central London art schools like Chelsea, St. Martin's, uh, I was at Chelsea, Camberwell, LCP, um, for all those people, um, uh, students who were moving to London for the first time. But when I got to my room, I would play all those records that you weren't allowed to like anymore. I played Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and uh, Steely Dan and all those records that you suddenly weren't allowed to like because punk had come along. But I was a young person, and my musical exploration had just begun, and I, I was devouring all this stuff, and I didn't see the sort of... I didn't understand the sort of that binary thing of you had to like this and you, you couldn't like that. And one of the records that I played uh, would be Wichita Lineman, and it's a song that I say that's kind of... It's, it stayed with me for 50 years... Uh, a few years ago, um, I've written a lot of books, but a few years ago I wrote um, a book about David Bowie. I've written two books about David Bowie, but I wrote this book about David Bowie. And unusually, it was a hit. It was, it was, um, it was a big hit, which was fantastic. Unusual. Uh, and my, edit, uh, my agent at the time, a lovely man called Ed Victor, he said, so what are you going to do now? You know, you've, you've had a hit. You, you need a follow-up. And I said, what I want to do, I want to write a, a book about this, uh, this song called The Wichita Line Man. And um, he was American, he said, Dylan, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> um, Ed sadly died. 
and I've got a new agent, um, an equally lovely man called Johnny Geller, who runs Curtis Brown. And he said, you've had some success with this book, so you, you should have, you need a follow-up sequel. And I said, um, well, what, what I want to really write is a, a book about this song, Wichita Lyman. He said, that's a really, really terrible idea. Anyway, that was the book that I wanted to write, and that's, that's the book that I wrote. Why? Um, for me, it's, it's a beautiful, existential love song. And it's incredibly evocative. It's heart-rendering. It's... It's, uh, it's incredibly sad. I remember when I was young, when you're a neurotic boy outsider and you want to prove to the world that you're a deep thinker and you care about things more than anyone else does, and you're sort of brooding, um, uh, and you read Albert Camus and Kafka and you want to show that you're deep. This was the song I would listen to when I wanted to feel sad, uh, and it's still the song that I play when I want to feel sad. It's only 14 lines long, but I think it contains the greatest couplet that's ever been written in pop, which is, I need you more than I want you, and I want you for all time, uh, which is heartbreaking, I think. It was sung by a man called Glenn Campbell and written by a man called Jimmy Webb, uh, who both came from very, very similar parts of America. They both grew up on the borders of, the, of um, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. They were both dirt poor. Um, Glenn Campbell's parents were farmers. And um, Jimmy Webb's father was a preacher. And um, one day, if, if Richard Curtis had written this, you wouldn't believe it because it's too cute, but one day um, Jimmy Webb, who was a really gifted pianist, he was in his father's tractor, and he heard on the transistor radio, he heard a very early, not very good song by Glenn Campbell, and who was probably about three or four years older uh, than Jimmy Webb. And um, he said, if I could grow up and one day maybe write a song for that man, then my, my life would be complete. And about five years later... It actually happened. Glenn Campbell was an incredible virtuoso. He was a member of a, um, a bunch of session musicians who played on all the big records of the, uh, the mid-60s. Beach Boys records, Sonny and Cher, The Monkees, uh, Ike and Tina Turner. They played on all of them. And he was the guitarist. He was an incredible virtuoso. Um, but he was desperate to be a pop star. And one day he heard a song, a demo of a song called By the Time I Get to Phoenix, which had been written by Jimmy Webb. And he recorded it and had a big hit with it. And he called up Jimmy Webb and said, can you write me another song about a place? I don't care where it is, just write me a song about a place. And Jimmy Webb wrote a song to order. He spent an afternoon thinking back to his childhood when he was in his father's car, driving along the Oklahoma border, looking at men who were fixing telegraph poles. And he thought of this song about a man who could hear, who was fixing a pole, who could hear his long-lost lover speaking to him, singing to him down this wire. And he had this very romantic vision. And he wrote this song, and he spent three hours writing this song. But he couldn't quite finish the song. But he was being pestered by Jimmy Webb, uh, by Glenn Campbell, who was in a recording studio, recording this thing. 
um, recording this album, and he was desperate for this song because he knew that Jimmy Webb had the secret sauce because he'd already had a hit with him. Anyway, in the end, Glenn Campbell was pestering Jimmy Webb so much that Jimmy Webb just wrapped this, these reel-to-reel tapes in a package and sent it off and thought nothing else of it. Didn't hear anything. About three weeks later, they were both at a, a recording session for uh, an ad, they were, a commercial they were both involved with, with uh, Chevrolet. And Jimmy Webb saw Glenn Campbell and very timidly went up and asked him what he thought of the song. He said, so you didn't like it? He said, I didn't like it. I, record, I loved it. I recorded it. And he said, but it's not finished. He said, well, it is. It is finished. And I think that you can listen to that song and it's not a perfect song, but I think it's a perfect record. Um, And what Glenn Campbell brought to that song, not just in terms of the orchestration, but the way he interprets it, I think it's one of the most moving things I've ever heard. Um, Jimmy Webb wrote... In three or four-year period, he wrote some extraordinary songs. He wrote By the Time I Get to Phoenix. He wrote Wichita Lineman. He wrote MacArthur Park. He wrote some amazing, amazing songs. But the thing is, these songs weren't part of the zeitgeist. If we think back now to the 1960s, we think of things like like a Rolling Stone. We think of um, Rolling Stones records. We think of what actually at the time was the counterculture. But the counterculture at the time was very separate. Uh, And actually the mainstream culture was songs like this. There were songs by the likes of Engelbert Humperdinck or Tom Jones. And songs, actually a lot of songs, which weren't particularly good. Um, But the more I wrote and the more I investigated and the more people I interviewed for this book, I realized that It touched so many people, so many songwriters and the likes of Paul Weller and Elvis Costello and Chris Stifford from Squeeze. They all hold this song with enormous affection and that's the weird thing about it. I think it is one of those songs that's been on the periphery of so many people's lives and it's not an important record in terms of what it represents it's not an important record in terms of what it meant to the culture at the time because it didn't really mean anything to the culture. It was just a beautiful, very specific record. And often when you're working on a, on a, on a long project, on a big project, a, a book project, you can end up liking the person or the subject a lot, a lot less after you finished than when you started. Um, I did a book ages ago on Jim Morrison, and when I finished that, I really liked him a lot less um, uh, than, than when I started. Uh, but I, I spent a long time writing my David Bowie book, and actually after I finished it, um, I thought even more of him. Um, but with this song, you would think that maybe you spend a year listening to a song, talking to people about the song, uh, And perhaps it it might tire and your enthusiasm and your love for it might sort of fade. But actually, it's exactly the opposite. And Bob Dylan, the great bard himself, he said that Wichita Line Man is the best song ever written. And if it's good enough for Bob Dylan, then it's good enough for me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. (laughs) 